I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Welcome to another episode of Murderish. Before we get into the episode, I want to invite all of you to a fun true crime event happening this year. I'll be attending the 2019 True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago on July 13th. The festival is being held at the Marriott Downtown Chicago Magnificent Mile Hotel. Ticket prices are very reasonable and many of your favorite true crime podcast hosts will be there. For more information, Go to tcpf2019.com. That's tcpf2019.com. Or you can search True Crime Podcast Festival in Facebook and join the official attendees discussion group. I really hope you'll consider coming. And if you do, tell them Jamie from Murderish sent you. I hope to see and meet some of you there. I also want to say a big thank you to Kate Much, who recently started supporting Murderish on Patreon. I appreciate your support, Kate, and I have some goodies coming out your way soon. A quick disclaimer before we get into the story. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. This particular episode involves the deaths of young children. Listener discretion is advised. It was the 23rd of December. The Price is Right was on, that's what I was watching. Two or three of the girls went out on the back patio and come running in the house and, and said, Mama, I think Sheila's house is on fire. I run to the front and out the door and that's when I seen Todd at his front door 
and he started screaming, my babies. Oh, my babies, my babies are burning. Cameron Todd Willingham, known as Todd, was born on January 9, 1968, in Ardmore, Oklahoma. His parents divorced shortly after his birth, and his mother abandoned him when he was just an infant. At 13 months old, Todd went to live with his father, Gene, who had remarried by then. Gene and his new wife, Eugenia, raised Todd along with his half-brother, Monty. Todd did not do well in school. He began doing drugs around the age of 11 and never made it to high school graduation. Todd dropped out of school in the 10th grade and things only got worse from there. Todd began sniffing paint and was arrested for numerous offenses including DUI, stealing a bike, and shoplifting. The DUI was not as a result of him being drunk. Todd was high on paint fumes at the time of his arrest. In 1988, Todd met Stacy Kai Kendall, who was a high school senior. Stacy came from a rough upbringing. At the age of four, she saw her stepfather strangle her mother to death. After high school, Stacy moved to be with family in Corsicana, Texas, which is about 50 miles south of Dallas. Todd followed Stacy to Texas, and so did the trouble in their relationship. Todd was violent towards Stacy. He drank a lot and had numerous girlfriends. One of Todd's girlfriends was an older woman who lived across the street from him and had children around Todd's age. When Todd and Stacy decided to get married, he broke off his relationship with the neighbor, saying to her that he needed to be a good husband and father. The woman was apparently crushed by the breakup, later saying that Todd had been, quote, the love of my life. She also said she knew how much Todd loved his children. He and Stacy had three daughters together, Amber Louise, two years old, and one-year-old twin girls named Carmen Diane and Cameron Marie. Todd was unemployed. He previously worked as an auto mechanic. Stacy worked at her brother's bar called Some Other Place. Todd stayed home to care for the three girls, and according to some, Todd's life seemed to be on the up and up when Amber was born. On December 22, 1991, Eugenia said she had spoken on the phone with Todd. She and Todd's father, Gene, were going to visit him and his family on Christmas Eve. Todd was looking forward to the visit and told his parents that they had just picked up family photos and had pictures for them. During the call, Todd put Amber on the phone with his stepmom. Eugenia later said in an interview that Todd did not seem upset or angry about anything and appeared to be looking forward to seeing them. The following morning, on December 23, 1991, while Stacy was out buying Christmas presents, Todd was awakened by his daughter, Amber, in the house they lived in at 1213 West 11th Street in Corsicana, Texas. Todd said he woke up when he heard Amber crying out for him. He saw smoke in the bedroom, jumped out of bed, and told Amber to get out of the house. He said that he tried to crawl to the twins' bedroom, but could not get past the fire. He said when he stood up to step over the baby gate, his hair caught on fire. As debris started falling from the ceiling, Todd ran outside to get help. The family didn't have a phone at the time. 11-year-old Brandice Barbie, who lived two houses down, was playing in her backyard when she smelled smoke. She ran inside and told her mother, Diane, who you heard from in the Frontline PBS audio clip played in the beginning of this episode. Diane and Brandice hurried up the street, and that's when they saw the smoldering house and Todd Willingham standing on the front porch wearing only a pair of jeans, his chest blackened with soot, his hair and eyelids singed. Todd was screaming, quote, My babies are burning up. 
He said his children were trapped inside. Todd told the Barbies to call the fire department, and while Diane raced down the street to get help, he found a stick and broke the children's bedroom window. Flames came rushing out through the hole in the window. He broke another window and flames burst through that one as well. Todd then retreated into the yard, kneeling in front of the house. A neighbor later told police that Todd intermittently cried, quote, my babies, then fell silent, as if he had, quote, blocked the fire out of his mind. When firefighters arrived at the burning house on Corsicana's south side, a frantic, shirtless Todd was on his front porch calling for help. Todd approached firefighters, shouting that his children were in their bedroom, where flames were the thickest. Firefighters had to restrain Todd several times to keep him from re-entering the house. Todd's neighbor, Diane Barbie, could feel the intense heat radiating off the house when she returned to the scene. The five windows of the children's bedroom exploded and flames blew out, as Barbie put it. A fireman sent word over his radio for rescue teams to, quote, step on it. Todd, looking on, appeared to grow more hysterical, and a police chaplain named George Monaghan led him to the back of the fire truck and tried calming him down. Todd explained that his wife, Stacy, had gone out earlier that morning and that he had been jolted from sleep by Amber screaming, quote, Daddy, Daddy. Todd said, quote, My little girl was trying to wake me up and tell me about the fire. I couldn't get my babies out. While Todd was talking to Monaghan, a fireman emerged from the house, cradling Amber. As she was given CPR, Todd ran to her, then suddenly headed into the house toward the twins' bedroom. Monaghan and another man restrained him. Quote, We had to wrestle with him and then handcuff him. Monaghan later told police that he had received a black eye during the struggle. One of the first firemen at the scene told investigators that at an earlier point, he had also held Todd back. Quote, Based on what I saw on how the fire was burning, it would have been crazy for anyone to try and go into the house, he said. A parent's worst nightmare was realized that night, as all three of the Willingham daughters died from smoke inhalation. When investigators began talking to witnesses at the scene, they immediately received conflicting accounts. Some witnesses reported that Todd tried to save the girls and was covered in soot from the fire. His eyebrows had been singed and his wrists and hands were blackened with smoke and soot from trying to go back into the house. Other witnesses said that Todd sat in his front yard and watched the fire, not doing anything to save his children. At least one witness said that she told Todd to try to rescue the girls, but he moved his car away from the flames instead. The neighbor, Diane Barbie, told investigators that she didn't see Todd do anything to try to save his children, despite the fact that her own daughter said Todd had broken a window on the porch to try to get back into the house. Todd's wife, Stacy, said she remembered nothing unusual in the days before the fire. She and Todd were not fighting and were preparing for the holidays. She also stated that on the day of the fire, she found the space heater had been turned on. Stacy said she turned the space heater back off wondering if Amber had been the one to turn it on. She said she remembered catching Amber putting things too close to the space heater numerous times. Some of the residents in Corsicana started to become suspicious of Todd's behavior after the fire. After the funeral for the girls, the city held a benefit at a local bar to take up a collection for Todd and Stacy. No one expected the couple to attend because of the tragedy, but they did end up attending. Todd was said to have been laughing and drinking beer, 
complaining that his dartboard had been destroyed in the fire. During the investigation, some witnesses began to change their stories. Initially, people were supportive and sympathetic to the couple. Once people found out that Todd was a suspect, their stories went from supportive to accusatory. Police chaplain George Monaghan, who at first claimed that Todd seemed devastated by the fire, now said he thought Todd had been putting on an act, describing him as, quote, too emotional, and saying, quote, he seemed to have the type of distress that a woman who had given birth would have upon seeing her children die. Monaghan said he had a gut feeling that Todd must have been responsible for the fire. Brandice Barbie, the Willingham's young neighbor, initially said that Todd was covered in soot, with singed hair, and screaming that his daughters were still inside the house. She also initially said that Todd broke two windows to try and get into the house and rescue his girls. Now Brandice was saying that she told Todd to go back into the house, but he refused. She said he moved his car away from the house, sat down on the lawn, and made no attempt to try to save his daughters. She said that once firefighters arrived, Todd became far more agitated and had to be restrained. The evening of the fire, Todd told authorities that he moved the car because he was worried that it might explode. Diane Barbie, Brandice's mother, originally described Todd as hysterical and said she saw the front of the house explode in the fire. After the investigation began and it was clear that Todd was a suspect, Diane said that he could have gone back in because she had only seen smoke coming out of the house. Other neighbors reported that when the couple came back to the home after the fire, they seemed to be in a light-hearted mood. Once authorities arrived, they said the mood turned much more serious. A firefighter, Ron Franks, said that Todd was visibly upset because he was unable to find a dart set in the wreckage. At the fundraiser for the family, a witness said that Todd placed an order for a replacement set of darts and said that money was no longer a problem. Many studies have shown that witnesses' memories of events often change when supplied with new contextual information. Cognitive psychologist Etiel Dror, who had done extensive studies on eyewitness and expert testimony, said, quote, The mind is not a passive machine. Once you believe in something, once you expect something, it changes the way you perceive information and the way your memory recalls it. Perhaps this was the case with witnesses in Todd's case. Or perhaps, Todd was putting on a show to cover up what he had done. Deputy State Fire Marshal Manuel Vasquez reviewed the fire scene with Corsicana officials. The investigation determined that the fire had been started with some type of liquid accelerant. To support this theory, investigators pointed to certain observations in the house such as char patterns on the floor in the shape of puddles, finding multiple starting points for the fire, finding that the fire had burned, quote, fast and hot, and charring underneath the front door jam. Vasquez would later testify that liquid accelerant had been poured in the children's bedroom, along the hallway outside the room, and then out the front door of the house. Vasquez said this created a, quote, fire barrier that would have prevented the children from getting out of the room. Investigators found samples of burned materials in the rubble, and sent them to a lab to test for liquid accelerant. The lab reported that one of the samples from the threshold of the front door contained, quote, mineral spirits, which is commonly found in charcoal lighter fluid. Vasquez and Deputy Fire Marshal Doug Fogg 
also said they noticed deep charring along the base of the walls. Flames tend to burn upward due to gases becoming buoyant when hot. But, they said, this fire burned in a downward direction, and there were char patterns on the floor shaped like puddles. Vasquez followed the path of the fire from the children's bedroom into the hallway, which he called the, quote, burn trailer. He said that sunlight coming in through the broken windows revealed more of the odd-shaped char patterns. Vasquez said that combustible or flammable liquids, when poured onto a floor, will cause fire to concentrate into these areas where the char patterns were found, and this is why investigators call them pore patterns. The fire burned through layers of carpeting, tile, and plywood flooring. The metal springs under the girls' beds had turned white due to intense heat. When Vasquez saw that the floor had some of the deepest burns, he claimed this was an indication that the floor had been hotter than the ceiling, which was abnormal because heat rises. He said this also indicated the fire started from a liquid accelerant which was poured on the floor. Deputy Fire Marshal Doug Fogg examined a piece of broken glass from one of the windows. He noticed that it had a spiderweb-type pattern, which fire investigators refer to as, quote, crazed glass. From this observation, he determined that the fire in the house had burned, quote, fast and hot, and to him, this meant that a liquid accelerant had been used causing the glass to fracture into the spiderweb-like pattern. Outside on the front porch, investigators found brown stains, which they said were consistent with use of an accelerant. Soot marks that form a V pattern were believed to show the origin of the fire. The theory was that fire creates this pattern as heat and smoke rise in an outward V-shaped pattern. The bottom of the V would then show where the fire started. Vasquez found three places where the V pattern appeared, inside the girls' bedroom, in the hallway outside of the girls' bedroom, and at the front door. Vasquez would later testify in court that the finding of multiple origins of fire could only mean that the fire was set intentionally. Investigators concluded that a liquid accelerant had been poured in the children's bedroom, under their beds, along the hallway, and out the front door. The prosecution would claim at trial that the refrigerator in the kitchen had been moved to block the back door exit, creating a death trap. When Todd was brought in for questioning with investigators Fogg and Vasquez, he said he didn't know how the fire started. He did say it must have started in the girl's bedroom because that's where he saw flames coming from when he woke up. He said the family used three space heaters in the house, one of them in the children's bedroom. Todd said he didn't know if the heater in the girls' bedroom was turned off or on. Vasquez would later testify that when he saw the heater four days after the fire, it was in the off position. Todd also said to investigators that he heard a lot of popping and crackling and thought that the fire might have been started by something electrical. When asked whether he put on shoes before running from the home, Todd said that he had not. This convinced Vasquez that Todd had started the fire. He reasoned that since the floor had been soaked with liquid accelerant, causing the fire to burn low, that Todd could not have run through the hallway and out of the house without burning his feet. That said, according to the medical report from the hospital, Todd had no burn marks on his feet. Although Vasquez theorized that the fire burned low due to an accelerant, Todd told investigators that the fire burned around the top of the walls and not on the floor. 
He said there were no flames that he had to run through on the floor. Vasquez didn't believe him, concluding that Todd had started the fire while backing out of the house, setting fire to the children's bedroom, the hallway, and then the front porch. In court, Vasquez testified that Todd, quote, told me a story of pure fabrication. He just talked and he talked and all he did was lie. Two and a half weeks after the fire, on January 8, 1992, one day before Todd's 24th birthday, he and Stacy were driving in their car when their vehicle was surrounded by a SWAT team. Todd was arrested. According to Stacy, quote, they pulled guns out like we had just robbed 10 banks. All we heard was click, click, then they arrested him. A month later, Todd was indicted on charges of capital murder for the deaths of his three daughters. Navarro County District Attorney Patrick Batchelor said that if Todd had cared as much about the girls as he did about playing darts and drinking beer, they might have been rescued. During the investigation, it was discovered that life insurance policies amounting to $15,000 had been taken out on Amber, Carmen, and Cameron Willingham. But Todd was not the beneficiary. Todd's father had taken out these policies on the girls, and he was the primary beneficiary. This helped to rule out a financial motive for the alleged crime. Instead, the prosecution theorized that Todd set fire to the house to cover up abuse of the three girls. The prosecution, however, presented no evidence to support the abuse theory. Stacy said that although Todd did hit her, he never abused the girls, adding that they, quote, were spoiled rotten. Eventually, prosecutors settled on the theory that Todd was a sociopath whose earlier crimes had escalated to murder, although none of his previous crimes were violent in nature. John Jackson, the assistant district attorney who tried Todd's case, told the Dallas Morning News that Todd was, quote, an utterly sociopathic individual who felt that his three daughters were an impediment to his lifestyle. Jackson's boss, D.A. Patrick Batchelor, said of Todd, quote, his children were interfering with his beer drinking and dart throwing. Batchelor claimed the fire was Todd's third attempt to kill his three daughters, alleging that Todd tried to abort Stacy's two pregnancies by kicking her in the stomach to try to cause miscarriages. No evidence was ever presented to support Batchelor's statement. No police reports or medical exams indicating that Todd attempted to cause miscarriages to Stacy were ever brought forth. Prosecutor Jackson also stated that Todd physically and emotionally abused Stacy and claimed he also abused animals. Although Todd had a history of domestic violence, no evidence was presented to support the claim that he abused animals. Jackson said, quote, he was an individual with essentially no redeeming values. This was his crowning achievement as a psychopath, the murder of his three children. Jackson said that Todd's injuries from the fire were superficial in nature. Jackson made these claims despite fire inspectors who reviewed the files, telling Jackson that, quote, Willingham's first-degree and second-degree burns were consistent with being in a fire before the moment of flashover, that is, when everything in a room suddenly ignites. Jackson also told the jury that, quote, any escape or rescue route from the burning house was blocked by a refrigerator, which had been pushed against the back door, requiring any person attempting escape to run through the conflagration at the front of the house. Under Texas law, because there were multiple victims, Todd was eligible for the death penalty. 
Jackson was personally opposed to the death penalty and also felt it was a waste of money because of the cost of a trial and appeals process. On average, it cost $2.3 million to execute a prisoner in Texas. This amount is at least three times what it would cost to keep someone in prison for 40 years. Jackson's boss, D.A. Batchelor, felt differently. He had previously made the comment that, quote, certain people who commit bad enough crimes give up the right to live. Ultimately, it was decided that Todd's crime was so heinous, he was deserving of the death penalty. Texas was one of three states in 1992, along with Kansas and New Mexico, that did not offer a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. It's been said that juries in these states sometimes worry that defendants convicted of terrible crimes will eventually be paroled, which may lead them to impose a sentence of death, having no option in between. Studies have shown that when given the choice, juries are more likely to impose the sentence of life without parole rather than death. But that was not an option for the jurors hearing Todd Willingham's case. I recently discovered a new podcast that is equal parts friendship, nostalgia, and research on unsolved stories. Resolve Mysteries podcast follows the 90s television show Unsolved Mysteries hosted by Robert Stack and provides the most recent updates on each segment. The hosts of Resolve Mysteries are three friends who have a love for true crime, canned wine, and the unsolved. The stories they cover range from the very silly to the truly heartbreaking. These three fiery women provide in-depth research that will leave you laughing, crying, and occasionally outraged. Resolve Mysteries podcast is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite pods. Join them and perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. At trial, one of the prosecutors claimed that Todd's tattoo of a skull and a serpent fit the profile of a sociopath. When Stacy was asked about her husband's tattoo, her response was, quote, It's just a tattoo. He just likes skulls and snakes. The prosecution claimed that Todd's tattoo and his love of heavy metal music fit the profile of a sociopath. Jackson claimed that Todd used liquid accelerant to burn the shape of a pentagram into the floor, then set it on fire. He had two medical experts testify to this, neither of whom had ever met Todd. The Willingham fire occurred during the end of the Satanic Panic in the United States, which began in the early 1980s. The same Satanic theory was used to help convict Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly known as the West Memphis Three. The West Memphis Three were convicted of murdering three eight-year-old boys, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore, in West Memphis, Arkansas, on May 5, 1993. In 2010, new DNA evidence and potential jury misconduct was brought forth and this resulted in the West Memphis Three being offered a plea bargain by the prosecution. All three men took the plea deal and were allowed to enter Alford pleas. They were all released from prison in 2011 after spending 18 years behind bars. The first of the prosecution's medical experts to testify was Tim Gregory, a therapist with a master's degree in marriage and family issues. 
Gregory had not published any research dealing with sociopathic behavior. Gregory also happened to be a personal friend of Jackson's. Jackson showed Gregory a picture of an Iron Maiden poster that had been hanging in the Willingham house. The poster was that of a skull with a fist being punched through it. Gregory claimed that the image displayed, quote, violence and death. Looking at pictures of other posters belonging to Todd, Gregory testified that, quote, all of these are in fire, depicting, it reminds me of something like hell. And there's a picture, a Led Zeppelin picture of a falling angel. I see there's an association many times with cultive type activities, a focus on death, dying. Many times, individuals that have a lot of this type of art have interest in satanic type activities. A friend of Todd's named Sherry Cooley said in an interview that, quote, we had posters of Iron Maiden hanging in our house too. My ex-husband probably still has his Iron Maiden posters, you know, at 40. They were Iron Maiden fans, so what? The second medical expert called to the stand by the prosecution was forensic psychiatrist James Grigson. Grigson's reputation preceded him. He had testified so often for the prosecution in capital cases that he was known as, quote, Dr. Death, due to the number of trials in which he testified where the defendant was sentenced to death. A Texas appellate judge once wrote that when Grigson appeared on the stand, the defendant might as well, quote, commence writing out his last will and testament. On the witness stand, Grigson suggested that Todd was an, quote, extremely severe sociopath and that, quote, no pill or treatment could help him. Grigson would later be cited for claiming, quote, 100% accuracy of predicting criminal behavior and for testifying that defendants, whom he had never met, were dangerous. Neither of the prosecution's medical experts had ever interviewed or even met Todd Willingham. In 1995, three years after the Willingham trial, Grigson was expelled from the American Psychiatric Association and the Texas Society of Psychiatric Physicians for violation of ethics. The APA said Grigson had repeatedly arrived at a, quote, psychiatric diagnosis without first having examined the individuals in question and for indicating, while testifying in court as an expert witness, that he could predict with 100% certainty that the individuals would engage in future violent acts. In an attempt to cement their case against Todd, the prosecution called to the stand Johnny Webb, a jailhouse informant. Webb was in prison for robbing a woman at knife point to try to get money to support his drug and alcohol addictions. At Todd's trial, Webb was the first witness called. He testified that Todd told him that he poured lighter fluid in the house and set it on fire. He also said that Todd did this to cover up Stacy's physical abuse of one of their daughters, although autopsies of the girls showed no signs of injuries other than from the fire. No other witnesses were ever found to say that either Todd or Stacy mistreated any of the children. More on jailhouse informant Johnny Webb later. Todd's attorneys believed he was guilty of arson and murder, and that if the case went to trial, he would likely get the death penalty. Several of Stacy's relatives had previously told the prosecutor that they wanted to avoid a trial, even though they believed Todd was guilty. Jackson was agreeable to this and discussed the plea with Todd's court-appointed attorneys, Robert Dunn and lead counsel David Martin. 
The plea deal offered Todd a life sentence in exchange for pleading guilty. The defense attorneys presented the plea offer to Todd, who promptly turned it down. He said he would not plead guilty to something he didn't do, even if it meant avoiding execution. Martin said in a later interview, quote, Everyone thinks defense lawyers must believe their clients are innocent, but that's seldom true. Most of the time, they're guilty as sin. Regarding Todd, Martin said, quote, All the evidence showed that he was 100% guilty. He poured accelerant all over the house and put lighter fluid under the kids' beds. It was a classic arson case. There were puddle patterns all over the place, no disputing those. Todd's lawyers asked his parents to talk to him and convince their son to accept the plea deal. Eugenia said that David Martin said to her, quote, Look what your son did. You got to talk him into pleading or he's going to be executed. When they spoke with Todd, he told them he was not going to plead guilty to something he did not do, particularly the murder of his children. When Martin was asked later what he thought of Todd's decision to turn down the plea deal, he said, quote, I thought it was nuts at the time, and I think it's nuts now. Todd's refusal to take the deal did not do anything to sway the prosecution's or the defense's beliefs. Both sides believed that he was an unrepentant killer. During the trial, Todd did not testify. In fact, while the prosecution would call 17 witnesses, the defense called only one, the family babysitter, who testified that she couldn't believe Todd would kill his children. Another inmate was supposed to testify to dispute Johnny Webb's claims. However, the judge ruled his testimony as hearsay and would not allow it. Todd's defense attorneys tried to find a fire expert to dispute Vasquez and Fogg's conclusion that Todd had started the fire. They contacted one investigator, and he also felt that the fire was as a result of arson. Martin commented, quote, We never could find anybody that contradicted Vasquez. Upon examination, some found it odd that the defense could not find even one expert to dispute what the investigators claimed. Martin explained the decision to only contact one fire investigator by saying that money was tight and he only had enough funds to hire one expert. When the expert with whom he consulted agreed the fire was arson, he wasn't called to testify. When asked about the one fire expert he did contact, Martin said, quote, we hired one, and he said, yep, it's arson. It was really very, very clear what happened in the house. Everybody who saw it, of course, reached the same conclusion. In an interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper, Martin gave another reason when asked about not being able to find an expert to counter the prosecution's fire investigators. Martin said in the interview, quote, Hey, let me tell you what we did. Rob Dunn and I, who tried this case with me, we went and bought carpet. We bought lighter fluid. We poured the lighter fluid on the carpet. We set it on fire. And when it finished burning, it looked just exactly like the carpet did in Todd Willingham's house. When asked his opinion about Todd's motive, Martin said, quote, He had no conscience. Why do monsters kill? They like killing. Surprisingly, Todd's trial for arson and the triple homicide of a toddler and twin infants lasted only two days. On August 21st, 1992, eight months after the fire, the jury had reached its verdict. After deliberating for about an hour, Cameron Todd Willingham 
was found guilty of murdering his three daughters. One of the jurors, Dorinda Deshoom, said of deliberations, quote, A lot of them wanted to vote right away. Me and two other people wanted to go over the facts of the case. It was unfair to go straight in there and decide. We went through everything we could have. All I can go by is what I had seen then. All you can go on when you are on a jury is what is put before you. I stand by my vote. Guilty. When it came time to decide on Todd's sentence, jurors deliberated slightly longer than they had for his verdict. Jurors sentenced Todd Willingham to death for the murder of his three daughters. When asked about the evidence, Dorenda Brukowski, one of the jurors in Todd's trial, said that Vasquez's testimony and report were important, but another deciding factor was the portrayal of Todd standing outside, watching the fire destroy his home, with his children still inside. Brukowski said, quote, He didn't do anything. She said the jury thought Todd's behavior was suspicious. Jurors also said that witness testimony claiming Todd did nothing to try to help his daughters and that he moved his vehicle away from the house made it look as if he cared more for the car than his children. Juror Henry Ponder said, quote, There was evidence of a fire that was deliberate. Not getting the children out of the house, getting the car out of the way, it was all there. Another juror, Laura Marks, said she would have found Todd guilty even without the arson finding solely because he did not try to save his children. Attorney Scott Greenfield, who has a blog called Simple Justice, says that common sense is, quote, one of the most insidious threats to justice imaginable. He says that prosecutors and defense attorneys often tell jurors to use common sense to come to their verdict, but then present their case so one-sided that jurors often jump to conclusions about a defendant's behavior and compare their own everyday experiences to sudden and traumatic events like the fire at the Willingham house. In reality, very few people have ever been in the situation that Todd was in that day, watching his house burn while his three daughters were still inside. Todd made statements about people who were quick to judge him for what they had heard second and third hand. He said, quote, let me drop you in a burning house and you show me what you'd do. It's been said that second and third hand accounts of incidents are often unreliable because the storyteller uses his or her own perspective to tell it. If someone else does not come up with a reasonable explanation for why the defendant behaved the way he did, jurors are often left to contemplate only what they have heard from the prosecution, which seemed to be the case with Todd Willingham's jury. After all, the jury only heard from one witness for the defense a babysitter. Another important factor that juror Dolores Brokowski noted was that Todd's defense attorneys never suggested that the cause of the fire could have been accidental. Attorney David Martin did suggest that Amber, the oldest daughter, could have knocked over the oil lamp while she was playing with a lighter, but he never explained or showed the jury how that could have happened. How Dolores Brokowski ended up on the jury was a head-scratcher for some people, as her father was a friend of Doug Fogg, who investigated the Willingham fire. Regarding the potential conflict, Dolores said, quote, I told them I knew Mr. Fogg, but they didn't care. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals had been known for upholding convictions, even when overwhelming exculpatory evidence came to light. In 1997, DNA testing proved 
that sperm collected from a rape victim did not match a man named Roy Kreiner. Kreiner had been sentenced to 99 years for a crime he did not commit. Two lower courts recommended that the verdict be overturned, but the Court of Criminal Appeals upheld it, arguing that Kreiner might have worn a condom or might not have ejaculated. In the year 2000, George W. Bush pardoned Kreiner based on the 1997 DNA evidence. Todd's first appeal was heard by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals in 1995. The basis for his appeal was fourfold. The trial court refused to grant Todd's motion for change of venue, which he requested due to inflammatory statements made by the prosecution. Secondly, the trial court refused to admit evidence offered by the defense to impeach the testimony of a witness for the state, that witness being jailhouse snitch Johnny Webb. Thirdly, the trial court erred in its charge to the jury during the punishment phase of the trial by failing to instruct the jury on the effect of parole as parole would qualify as a quote, mitigating circumstance under the facts of this case. Texas at that time did not have a sentence of life without parole. And lastly, Todd's appeal argued that the evidence was insufficient to support the jury's answers to the special issues submitted in the punishment phase of the trial, particularly that Todd was a continuing threat to society and that mitigating circumstances would not warrant a life sentence. The appellate court upheld the trial court's rulings and rejected each of Todd Willingham's arguments. In 1996, after his first appeal was denied, Todd received a new court-appointed lawyer named Walter Reeves. In an interview, Reeves said that he was appalled by the quality of the defense presented at Todd's trial and his first appeal. Reeves was instrumental in helping Todd with the writ of habeas corpus for his next appeal. While death penalty cases often take 10 years or more, the writ is the most crucial because it is here the defendant can introduce new evidence such as perjured testimony, unreliable experts, and unreliable scientific findings. In April of 1998, Reeves filed a second appeal for Todd Willingham, this time by filing a federal writ of habeas corpus in the Northern District of Texas, Dallas Division. A writ of habeas corpus, when written by a defendant called appellants or petitioners in appellate cases, can be used to argue against their imprisonment. The writ can be used to ask the warden of the prison, who is represented by prosecutors, to justify their detention, usually claiming that this detention is a violation of the defendant's constitutional rights. On July 25, 2000, the magistrate, or trial court, recommended that relief be denied. The appellate court agreed and denied Todd's petition. Todd Willingham then filed an application for a certificate of appealability which is used when a defendant is denied their writ of habeas corpus. The Certificate of Appealability was asking for another court to hear the argument that Todd's habeas corpus appeal was wrongfully denied. On February 17, 2003, for a third time, Todd's request was denied. On July 21, 2003, Todd filed for writ of certiorari which is an application asking the U.S. Supreme Court to hear an appeal. The Supreme Court receives thousands of writs of certiorari each year, but only agrees to hear a small number of them. The Supreme Court denied Todd's petition on November 3, 2003. 
With numerous failed appeals, Todd Willingham was scheduled for execution on February 17, 2004. Four days prior to his scheduled execution, Todd received a call from his attorney, Walter Reeves. Reeves informed Todd that the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles, who review clemency applications, had voted 15 to 0 to deny his petition. Yet another huge blow. The Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles has been criticized for the way it operates as the members deliberate in secret. Board members are not bound by any specific criteria and do not debate cases in person. Instead, the members cast their vote by fax, a practice known as, quote, death by fax in Texas. Between 1976 and 2004, the state of Texas approved only one application for clemency from a death row prisoner. According to Reeves, a Texas appellate judge called the board's clemency system, quote, a legal fiction. Regarding Todd Willingham's clemency petition, Reeves said of the board, quote, they never asked me to attend a hearing or answer any questions. In early 2004, 12 years after Todd was sentenced to death, Gerald Hurst, a retired chemist turned fire investigator, was asked by Todd Willingham's supporters to examine the arson evidence compiled by State Deputy Fire Marshal Manuel Vasquez. Hurst was considered one of the preeminent arson investigators in the country. His work as a chemist made him wealthy. One of his inventions was the Mylar balloon. When Hurst retired, he concentrated on doing pro bono work for arson investigation cases. Just a few weeks before Todd's execution was scheduled to take place, Hurst agreed to review his case. By 2004, the standards for fire investigation had completely changed. In the early 1990s, the scientific method was not used by most arson investigators. Instead, they relied on experiments and procedures passed down by previous investigators. Hearst believed those methods were mostly junk science. In 1993, one year after Todd was convicted, the Supreme Court ruled that experts who testified must follow the scientific method. In 1997, the International Association of Arson Investigators filed a brief saying that arson investigators should not have to follow the scientific method because the duties of arson investigators were, quote, less scientific. The court rejected this and other similar arguments, but some investigators still stuck to their old methods. The scientific method is a method of experimentation used to look at observations and answer questions. It's how scientists gain new knowledge and improve on previous knowledge. In its simplest form, the scientific method has six steps. First, ask a question, then do background research, then construct a hypothesis, then test your hypothesis by conducting an experiment. If the procedure you're using is working, go to step five. If not, look for problems in your procedure and go back to check your previous steps. Next, analyze your data and draw conclusions from it. If your results align with your hypothesis, go to step six. If not, ask a new question, form a new hypothesis, and experiment again. Lastly, communicate your results. By 2004, although the scientific method was used in many cases, there were still investigators who relied on procedures that had been passed down from others. Hearst said, quote, people investigated fire largely with a flat earth approach. It looks like arson, therefore it's arson. 
My view is you have to have a scientific basis, otherwise it's no different than witch hunting. Hearst, individually discredited, each piece of arson evidence used to convict Todd using publicly supported experiments backed by his recreation of elements in question, the most notable being the Lime Street Fire. Investigators previously believed that flashover, the point at which a room on fire becomes so hot that everything in it explodes at the same time, was only caused by flammable materials. Hearst says accidental fires also burn hot enough to cause flashover. He added that the only way to prove whether an accelerant was used in a fire is to test it for samples at the scene. In short, evidence of flashover is not proof that an accelerant was used. Hearst's main conclusion was that the investigator's theory of the fire, that an accelerant had been used, did not make sense scientifically. Hearst said that he could not pinpoint the cause of the fire without visiting the scene, which had been long destroyed by 2004. Even so, Hearst still said all indications were that the fire was accidental. He felt the most likely cause of the fire was a space heater or faulty electrical wiring, which Todd mentioned early on as a possible cause of the fire. Hearst also addressed the issue of the lab testing findings. Since the lab test results only found accelerant on the front porch of the house, and photos taken before the fire showed a charcoal grill on the porch, Hearst believed the accelerant found by the lab was from lighter fluid stored by the grill. He said the likely scenario was that water from the fire hoses spread lighter fluid from the container, which had been melted in the fire. A photograph taken of the house before the fire showed that a charcoal grill was there. Hearst rebutted all 20 of Vasquez's use of accelerant claims. Hearst concluded there was, quote, no evidence of arson, and that the conclusions reached regarding the fire that killed Todd's three daughters were, quote, based on the purest form of junk science. A troubling sentence in Vasquez's report also caught Hearst's attention. Vasquez claimed that of the approximate 1,200 to 1,500 cases he has investigated, most of them were arson. Hearst found this number to be too high, saying, quote, the Texas State Fire Marshal's office typically found arson in only 50% of its cases. Another statement in Vasquez's report bothered Hearst. Vasquez claimed that the fire had, quote, burned fast and hot due to a liquid accelerant. This theory, which had been used for decades by arson investigators, asserts that wood and gas-fueled fires burn at the same temperature. In his report, Vasquez said the aluminum threshold at the front door of Todd's home had melted and that, quote, the only thing that can cause that to react is an accelerant. In truth, a wood fire can reach temperatures up to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, while aluminum has a melting point of 1,000 to 1,200 degrees. Vasquez and Fogg also believe that the charred wood beneath the aluminum threshold was evidence of a liquid accelerant. Hearst had shown many times that the charring of wood underneath an aluminum door was caused by the amount of heat conducted by the aluminum. Hearst and other scientists have also shown that when liquid accelerant is poured over the threshold, the fire will die out due to lack of oxygen. Vasquez and Fogg had claimed in their report that the quote, brown stains on the front porch were evidence of a liquid accelerant that had not had enough time to soak into the concrete. 
Hearst had run experiments for these situations numerous times in his garage. Hearst would pour lighter fluid on the concrete floor and set fire to it. Once the fire burned out, there were never any brown stains, regardless of what kind of liquid accelerant Hearst used. He concluded that these brown stains were common in fires and were usually composed of rust or gunk from the charred debris mixing with water from fire hoses. Hearst saw in the report that both Todd and eyewitnesses that the front windows of the house suddenly exploded with flames coming out of them. Vasquez had claimed that the crazed glass resulted from rapid heating from a fire fueled by liquid accelerant. According to newer studies, this was another faulty belief that had been passed down over the decades. In a study of 50 houses in Oakland, California in 1991, investigators found that the fracturing of glass was actually caused by rapid cooling, not heating. Thermal shock causes the glass to contract so quickly that it settles into a cracked pattern. Investigators in the study tested this in a laboratory to confirm their results. When the glass was heated, no crazed glass was observed. But as soon as they added water to the heated glass, the cracked pattern appeared. Lastly, Hearst took on Vasquez and Fogg's most powerful evidence at trial, the burn trailer, pore patterns, puddle configurations, V patterns, and other burn marks, which they claimed showed the multiple points from which the fire originated. As far as the prosecutors claimed that Todd poured liquid accelerant in the shape of a pentagram, Hearst said, quote, The prosecutor in this case literally believed that the burn patterns on the floor were in the shape of a pentagram, like some satanic ritual. When you actually look at the burn pattern that they drew, and then you look at where the windows are, the windows furnish ventilation to a fire, and all they were looking at is what we call ventilation patterns. Hearst recalled that Vasquez and Fogg surmised that it would have been impossible for Todd to run down the burning hallway without scorching his bare feet. If the pore patterns and puddle configurations were as a result of flashover, Hearst reasoned, that would be consistent with Todd's explanation of events. When Todd exited his bedroom, the hallway was not yet on fire. The flames were contained within the children's bedroom, where, along the ceiling, he saw the, quote, bright lights. Regarding the question as to why Todd's feet weren't burned, Hearst addressed this point by saying, quote, the question has been asked, why were Todd Willingham's feet not burned? And the answer to that question is quite simple, because if no accelerant was poured on the floor, the floor would have been relatively cool until shortly after flashover occurred in the bedroom. The last part of him that would have gotten any burn would have been his feet. Hearst found it hard to imagine Todd pouring accelerant on the front porch where neighbors could have seen him. Scanning the files for clues, Hearst noticed a photograph of the porch taken before the fire, which had been entered into evidence. Sitting on the tiny porch was a charcoal grill. The porch was where the family barbecued. Court testimony from witnesses confirmed that there had been a grill, along with a container of lighter fluid, and that both had been burned when the fire roared onto the porch during post-flashover, which is when a fire ceases to be controlled by fuel and instead becomes controlled by ventilation, moving toward a source of oxygen, such as an open door or window. By the time Vasquez inspected the house, the grill had been removed from the porch during cleanup. Though he cited the container of lighter fluid in his report, 
Vasquez made no mention of the grill. At trial, Vasquez said that he had never been told of the grill's earlier placement. Other authorities were aware of the grill, but didn't take notice of its relevance. Hearst, however, was convinced that he had solved the mystery. When firefighters had blasted the porch with water, they had likely spread charcoal lighter fluid from the melted container. Without having visited the fire scene, Hearst says it was impossible to pinpoint the cause of the fire, but based on the evidence, he strongly believed that it was an accidental fire, most likely caused by the space heater or faulty electrical wiring. Hearst said later that, quote, Todd Willingham's case falls into that category where there is not an iota of evidence that the fire was arson, not an iota. Hearst's conclusions also explained why there had never been a motive for the crime. Hearst concluded there was no evidence of arson and that a man who had already lost his three children and spent 12 years in prison was about to be executed based on, quote, junk science. In an attempt to spare Todd Willingham's life, Hearst wrote a report outlining his conclusions. He was under the gun as Todd was scheduled to be executed in just four days. Overall, Hearst concluded that although Vasquez's report claimed 20 indicators of arson, in reality, quote, there were zero indicators of arson. Hearst first sent his report to another arson investigator for verification. Once he received verification, he sent his report to the office of Governor Perry and to the Board of Pardons and Paroles. Hearst's efforts were in vain. The Board of Pardons and Paroles, to whom Hearst's report was sent, denied Todd Willingham's petition for clemency. Governor Perry subsequently refused to grant Todd Willingham a 30-day stay of execution to consider the new findings. The U.S. Supreme Court rejected an appeal made the day before the execution. Todd Willingham was going to be put to death by lethal injection. A spokesperson for Governor Perry said, quote, The governor made his decision based on the facts of the case. Given the brevity of the report, and the general counsel's familiarity with all the other facts in the case, there was ample time for the general counsel to read and analyze the report and to brief the governor on its contents. This statement rebutted claims that Hearst's report was never even read by the governor's office. From 1976 to 2009, Texas executed 473 inmates, the most by far of any state in the country Virginia had the second highest number of executions, executing 109 people in that same time period. Shortly before the scheduled execution, Stacy went to see Todd. This was the only time the pair had seen each other during Todd's 12-year imprisonment. Stacy had divorced Todd years before. During their visit, Todd asked Stacy not to come to the execution. He also asked her if his tombstone could be erected next to their children's graves. Stacy, who had always believed in Todd's innocence, had recently taken her first look at the original court records and arson findings. She spoke with Todd's private investigator, Tina Church, and told Tina she had read the entire trial record in a single day. When Church tried to tell her that they had new evidence, Stacy dismissed it. Unaware of Gerald Hurst's post-trial report, Stacy now believed that her ex-husband was guilty of murdering their three children. Stacy denied Todd's wish to be buried next to their daughters, later telling a reporter, quote, he took my kids away from me. 
Stacy now refuted her ex-husband's claims that Amber, their oldest daughter, might have caused the fire by accidentally knocking over the space heater in the children's bedroom. Although Stacy seemed to initially agree that Amber could have left the space heater on, she was now saying that her ex-husband murdered their daughters. Some who had followed Todd's case remembered Stacy's initial statements during questioning and during trial were vastly different than what she was claiming now. On February 16, 2004, one day before Todd's execution, Stacy filed a document with the courts. It was an affidavit signed by her brother. The affidavit claimed that Stacy told her brother that Todd confessed during their meeting in prison that he had in fact set the fire that murdered their three daughters. When Todd was told about the affidavit, he was incensed, but Stacy seemed to go back and forth with her opinions of what happened. Earlier in 2009, Stacy claimed that her brother's affidavit was untrue, saying that Todd did not confess to her and that they had a good relationship before the fire. The following year, her tone had changed again. She said, quote, Todd murdered Amber, Carmen, and Cameron. He burnt them. He admitted he burnt them to me, and he was convicted for his crime. This is the closest to justice that my daughters will ever get. In an interview with Fort Worth Star-Telegram, Stacy said that Todd also told her his reason for setting the fire. Stacy said, quote, He said if I didn't have my girls, I couldn't leave him and that I could never have Amber or the twins with anyone else but him. He told me he was sorry and that he hoped that I could forgive him one day. Stacy's inconsistent statements made it difficult for some people to make heads or tails of her beliefs regarding the fire. The afternoon of his execution, Todd requested a final meal. At 4 p.m., Todd was served three barbecued pork ribs, two orders of onion rings, fried okra, three beef enchiladas with cheese, and two slices of lemon cream pie. Todd's mother and father, who were with him during the meal, became emotional. Quote, Don't be sad, Mama, Todd said. In 55 minutes, I'm a free man. I'm going home to see my kids. Earlier, Todd had confessed to his parents that there was one thing about the day of the fire that he had lied about. He said that he had never actually crawled into the children's bedroom. He said, quote, I just didn't want people to think I was a coward. On February 17, 2004, the day of Todd's execution, Todd was asked if he had anything to say. Todd said, quote, yeah, the only statement I want to make is that I am an innocent man, convicted of a crime I did not commit. I have been persecuted for 12 years for something I did not do. From God's dust I came, and to dust I will return. So the earth shall become my throne. I gotta go, road dog. I love you, Gabby. It's unclear who Gabby is. Todd also had parting words for his ex-wife before he was executed. As Todd attempted an obscene gesture, he said to Stacy, quote, I hope you rot in hell, bitch. After his execution, efforts to exonerate Todd Willingham intensified, and jailhouse informant Johnny Webb had changed his story. After the trial, Webb recanted his statements and said Todd Willingham was an innocent man. Sometime after that, Webb recanted that statement and said Todd did confess to him. Then, in a 2013 interview with The Innocence Project, Webb said he wanted to set the record straight about his testimony in Todd's trial. During the interview, Webb said, quote, 
I've been wanting to come forward with this for a long time about certain specific things that no one's ever known. This has been something that's pretty much destroyed my life for 22 years. In 2006, the Innocence Project filed a complaint of professional negligence with the Texas Forensic Science Commission, or FSC, regarding the Willingham case. Lentini, an investigator on another high-profile arson case known as, quote, the Lime Street Fire, was hired to write the report. Lentini said that a lot of Fogg and Vasquez's theories seemed to come out of the 1970s. Lentini said that Vasquez used the phrases, quote, the fire talks to me, and quote, a fire doesn't lie, people lie, but fires don't lie. Once the FSC had reviewed the report, they decided to retain an outside expert themselves. In August 2009, Chicago Tribune investigative article by Stephen Mills concluded, quote, over the past five years, the Willingham case has been reviewed by nine of the nation's top fire scientists, first for the Tribune, then for the Innocence Project, and now for the Commission. All concluded that the original investigators relied on outdated theories and folklore to justify the determination of arson. In July of 2010, a four-person panel commission, which had been charged with the investigation of Willingham's case, concluded that the investigators had used, quote, flawed science in determining that the fire was a result of arson. The commission also found insufficient evidence to prove that State Deputy Fire Marshal Manuel Vasquez and Corsicana Assistant Fire Chief Douglas Fogg were negligent or guilty of misconduct in their arson work. On September 25th of 2010, Todd's stepmother Eugenia Willingham and his cousin Patricia Cox filed a lawsuit to posthumously exonerate Todd. The Innocence Project had also filed a lawsuit against the state of Texas, seeking a judgment of, quote, official oppression. Both parties appeared at the hearing, which was scheduled to be heard in front of Judge Charlie Baird. As the hearing began, Stacy Kai Kendall, Willingham's ex-wife, held a press conference outside the courthouse with her attorney, Johnny Sutton. Sutton began the press conference explaining that he represented Stacy saying, quote, who is the mother of Amber, Cameron, and another twin baby who were murdered by Todd Willingham back in 1991. Sutton had apparently forgot baby Carmen's name. Inside the courthouse, Todd's family was represented by Gerald Goldstein. Goldstein opened the hearing by telling the court that the family was at the hearing, quote, seeking a determination of probable cause, Your Honor, that there was official misconduct that occurred in the trial, conviction, and execution of Cameron Todd Willingham, and as well, seeking an order from this court determining that he was wrongfully convicted in order to salvage his reputation. From outside the courthouse, Stacy gave this statement, quote, My name is Stacy Kai Kendall, and I was married to Todd Willingham. Time and time again, I have been asked to speak to the public about the murders of my daughters. Amber would be 21 today and the twins 19. I'm here today to stand up one last time on behalf of my daughters. After today, I hope that all of you will leave me in peace and let me deal with my grief the best that I can. I think about my daughters every day and I miss them. My ex-husband murdered my daughters and just before he was executed, he told me he did it. He stood and watched while their tiny bodies burned. 
I am here to make sure that my daughter's voices are heard. Todd murdered Amber, Carmen, and Cameron. He burned them. He admitted he burned them to me, and he was convicted for his crime. That is the closest justice that my daughters will ever get. Thank you for being here today. Back at the hearing, Judge Baird asked Lentini if he believed that no scientific evidence supported a conclusion of arson. Lentini answered that all the evidence was consistent with an accidental fire. He said that the evidence the fire marshal put forth is not evidence of arson. Gerald Hurst was the next person called to the stand. Hurst went over his impressive list of credentials. When asked if Hurst found any scientific evidence of arson in the fire, Hurst replied that there was no valid science at all. He said that he was never contacted about his report by the Navarro County District Attorney's Office, nor was he ever contacted from anyone in the state prosecuting attorney's office, the state fire marshal's office, or the governor's office. In 2012, the Innocence Project and Todd Willingham's family members filed a petition with the parole board seeking a posthumous pardon. By that time, several of the country's top experts in fire forensics had debunked the indicators of arson and concluded the fire was an accident of unknown cause. Barry Sheck and former Texas Governor Mark White attempted to clear Todd's name in an exoneration hearing at which forensic scientists most familiar with the case testified that Todd was convicted by junk science. That procedure was halted by the Texas Third Court of Appeals before a ruling could be made. As of today, no pardon has been granted. John Lentini, one of the investigators in the Lime Street Fire, another high-profile case that was groundbreaking for the field of arson investigation, said of Willingham's execution, quote, the state of Texas executed a man for a crime that they couldn't prove was really a crime. And the evidence says this was an accidental fire. And if it was an accidental fire, it doesn't matter how many posters of Iron Maiden Cameron Todd Willingham had on his wall, or Led Zeppelin, or whether he liked to play darts or drink beer, or whether he smacked his wife around. It only matters that the fire was not really a set fire. Lentini also said, quote, Committing arson at 9 a.m. is pretty uncommon. This is one of the things that I looked at in the Willingham case. I see this in a lot of cases. Usually, arson happens in the middle of the night. 9 a.m. is unusual because people are going to see it. There's going to be people out and about, people coming and going to work. They're going to see it. Most of the time, arson is a sneaky crime. Happens in the middle of the night. Dorenda Brukowski, who was on the jury for Willingham's case, now has second thoughts about the verdict. She said, quote, I don't sleep at night because a lot of this. I have gone back and forth in my mind trying to think of anything we missed. I don't like the fact that years later someone is saying maybe we made a mistake, that the facts aren't what they could have been. I do have doubts now. I mean, we can only go with what we knew at the time but I don't like the fact now that maybe this man was executed by our word because of evidence that is not true. It may not be true now, and I don't like the fact that I may have to face my God and explain what I did. When you're sitting there with all those facts, there was nothing else we could see. Now I don't know. I can't tell you he's innocent. I can't say 100% he's guilty. With no clear motive for the crime, fire investigation methods later determined to be, quote, junk science. 
and a witness for the prosecution going back and forth regarding his claims that Todd Willingham confessed, many people have wondered, did an innocent man get executed? That's it for this episode of Murderish. I'm curious to find out what you think about this case. Do you think Todd Willingham set the fire intentionally and murdered his young daughters? Or do you believe an innocent man was executed? To discuss this case, head over to the Murderish Discussion Group on Facebook or find me on Twitter at Murderish Pod. I'm also on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. If you're enjoying Murderish, do me the biggest favor and hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast app and tell a friend about the show. I'd also appreciate it if you left the show a positive rating and review in iTunes. And don't forget to check out Resolve Mysteries podcast. Interested in extra murderish perks? Go to patreon.com slash murderish to see some cool perks that are available in exchange for your monthly support. If you become a patron, you'll have immediate access to Patreon-exclusive bonus content, as well as other Patreon perks including murderish t-shirts, stickers, a shout out on the podcast, discount codes at the merch store, and other cool stuff. Want to show the world you're not a murderer, just murder-ish? Check out my online merch store at murderishpodcast.threadless.com, where you'll find t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other cool stuff. Email any comments or questions you have to murderishjamie at gmail.com. That's murderishjami at gmail.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music in this episode was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Murderish researcher Steve Field. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. I hope to see some of you in Chicago in July. And remember, listening to this show doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. You've heard the stories of bloody murder and horrendous homicide. But what about the rest of the crimes people fall victim to every day? What about the forensic chemist who falsified evidence? Or the thief who robbed a U.S. president's safety deposit box? What about the arsonists, stalkers, drug lords, and fraudsters? I'm Lindsay, the host of Mugshot. Mugshot is a true crime podcast that tells the stories of the non-murderous crimes you didn't know you needed to hear. Season 2 starts January 14th of 2019, so be sure to catch up on Season 1 on your favorite podcatcher. Until then, be on your best behavior, or you may end up pictured in your very own mugshot. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.